0: The following podcast contains explicit language.
1: It's Monday, May 2nd, 2016. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca, and Chuck Todd has had it with Ted Cruz. Well, everyone has, mathematically speaking. But Chuck Todd has had it speaking, speaking. He can't take the filibustering, he can't take the evasion, he can't take the non responsiveness. Trust Ted up Chuck. You knew Chuck Todd was cracking even a few months ago. It's not that Ted Cruz answers what he wants to answer, avoids your question. Every politician does that. It's just that when Ted Cruz does it, you get the sense that he thinks he's outsmarted you and he evades you very slowly. So inconsistent with actual human speech. Here was a Meet the Press interview from February, You've got to listen to what I call the yup chucks. Yup chucks are when Chuck wants the interview to move on, so he prods the guest, okay, we got it. Here, if you listen, you'll hear them pretty quietly, but they're and definitely there in the background. Beat him across the country.
2: And, and and I will say to the 65% of Republicans who recognize yeah. Donald Trump is not the best candidate to go head-to-head with yeah. Hillary Clinton, the only way to beat him is
1: For, for one answer, I heard Chuck yup chuck five times todd asked why not give president obama's supreme court nominee a vote rather than stall tactics and here we'll play some of cruz's answer and you can hear some of the veterans
2: then then go and make the case to the people i don't think the american people want that i'm very happy to take that case directly to hillary clinton directly to bernie sanders and and, and i would note look how do we know donald trump's record on this is going to be bad he has supported liberals for four decades,
1: Jimmy Carter, John Kerry, uh, Hillary Clinton, Chuck Schumer... But yesterday on Meet the Press, there was a new Yup Chuck record. I haven't heard Chuck yup Chuck someone like this since his Southwest flight was going to miss a connection, but the flight attendant still went through all her shtick. Please keep trade tables in the upright, yup, and locked, yup, position, K got it. In case of water landing, it's not going to water land. We're going to Des Moines. Please be sure to use just keep Yup, yup, yup. Well, anyway... Here, with Ted Cruz, he's trying five or six times to get Cruz to answer this one question. You say Trump is horrible. You say he's dastardly. You say he's an abomination. So you're going to support him? You spent this entire interview
3: trying to eviscerate Donald Trump. If he's the nominee, I take it you can't support him anymore, can you?
2: I believe if the Republican Party nominates Donald so fact, Trump, we will lose. both okay. Donald and Hillary support allowing illegal immigrants to become U.S. Right, citizens. Right, now, right. Donald says he'll fly them back to their but country first. But are you first. going to support him? We will him.
3: lose. I, I understand what you believe in I, the Republican Party.
2: The Democrats have had a debate. Hillary Clinton, Bernie right. Sanders, they've been willing okay, to debate. Okay, yep, yep, yep.
1: And then Cruz, this is my favorite part. Cruz lays this part on him. Why won't you Chuck, answer that question
2: Black, uh, straightforward. black Chuck, and white? Chuck, let me
1: finish this point I'm making. Well, instead of finishing the point you're making, how about answering the question Chuck's asking?
2: Suddenly, you're going to hear every day about Donald okay. Trump's tax. Re- I think the people All of right. Indiana can you answer a the question about whether you're going to support? In
3: are you going to support Donald Trump if he's the nominee?
2: I am going to beat Donald Trump. We are headed to a contested <laughs> convention, and we're going to win, and I'm not willing to concede this country. Listen, this all is right. my kid's future, Chuck. It's not, okay. it's not simply a game.
1: On the show today, I interview a man who spent more time with Bernie Sanders than Ben or Jerry in the name of explaining the burn to all of us and in the spiel, the icky coziness of the White House correspondence Dinner. But first, at this moment, I will stipulate that no one knows anything. But now let's listen to this interview with Evan Mcmara santoro and perhaps afterwards, that won't be quite as true. So much of our politics this year has been an upending of conventional wisdom. There is Donald Trump, where the conventional wisdom was, Donald Trump could never be president. Why? Because of his policies, because of his lack of truthfulness. No, have you seen the apprentice? He's Donald Trump. And on the other side, the conventional wisdom was, well, Bernie Sanders. He's not really going to play a role here. Let me read from the New Yorker. This is from 2014, and uh, Ryan Lizza was putting together a who could possibly run against Hillary's story. Earlier in the day, Sanders told me he was thinking about running for president. If he does, he will be the Democratic Party's Ron Paul. His chance of winning would be infinitesimal. But his presence in the race and his passion about a few key issues would expose vulnerabilities in the frontrunner's record and policies— Second part of that came true. The infinitesimal part did not. He did much better than infinitesimal. And having a great seat to that entire phenomenon was BuzzFeed's Evan McMorris Santoro. And now that front row seat is a podcast called No One Knows Anything, where he talks about conventional wisdom and he talks about politics. And I think, Evan, it's fair to say what you saw in the Sanders campaign greatly informs your take on politics. Yeah,
3: I think it's the best way to look at this year, actually. It was a campaign in which both the candidate, we're talking about Bernie Sanders, and all of his opponents did not expect him to do very well. Yes. So everyone was operating under conventional wisdom that proved to be completely false.
1: Because the guy wasn't even a Democrat before a few months ago. He was a socialist and not, wasn't just entitled. He, he really ran against Democrats and chastised them for being Democrats. So how could he possibly have done well in the Democratic primary fight? But I think it lays in a few key things. And the biggest one is, especially in Democratic politics, the front runner always gets a challenge. And when the frontrunner is as centrist, let's call Hillary Clinton that, the challenge has to come from the left. So if you give those two facts, I think that explains much of the Sanders appeal.
3: I think a lot of it also has to do with this idea of money. And just how upset voters turned out to be about how the campaign finance system works and how the campaigns are run and how politicians go about doing their jobs. I mean, the one connection between Trump and uh, Sanders, and I'm really loath to make those comparisons, but people do it a lot. But the one that there is, is that Trump is spending supposedly mostly his own money on the campaign and, and runs around talking about how little campaign donations he takes from from the rich. And Sanders, of course, ran this completely unprecedented small dollar only fundraising effort. And that was the part that was supposed to really, really be the heart of why Sanders was never going to cook off. Because the idea was, if you didn't have the fundraising apparatus uh, that even a Martin O'Malley had at the beginning of the election, you were never going to be a serious candidate. And what happened was Sanders was able to use the message that I'm not going to be doing this the way that you don't like to create a huge fundraising stream from these really small $27 average donations, as they say.
1: Yeah, As he says every time, his average donation, $27. And Philip Bump in The Washington Post did a good report about how it always stays $27. And he got a lot of hate mail for that. (laughs) Yeah, he sure did. Yeah, that's what happens (laughs) these days. All right, so this is good. I want to talk about campaign financing. Is that one of the things that no one knows? Or can you make the case that Bernie Sanders, in running so effectively against the evil of money in politics, wound up, in a way, undercutting his case and showing that money in politics is not dispositive in terms of political success? Well, that's an interesting
3: point, actually, because that has proven to be kind of a problem. In the last debate, the big sort of Brooklyn brawl debate between Clinton and Sanders, Sanders was asked directly about Clinton's ties to Wall Street and the millions and millions of dollars she gets from the financial sector and asked to name, you know, one instance where that money has changed her vote or he can point to a vote that he thinks comes from that. But, Sanders did not have one at hand and it wasn't such a great moment. And it is a moment that sort of uh, that makes it hard for him to make his case. And it's one that Clinton has used over and over and over where she, she goes back to the sort of standard political wording about money, which is I have to go out there and raise it. The amount that I can raise shows my strength as a candidate. Don't ask me where I get it. And definitely don't assume that it buys anything where Sanders has been able to make a difference is by saying, look, you have common sense, you know people aren't giving these people all this money if they didn't want something,
1: and so why not just give it to somebody who's not doing it at all? Do you think, though, that Bernie Sanders ran a good campaign, a surprisingly good campaign, made good speeches somehow connected with voters in ways that the political class found unexpected? I think he ran
3: a third of a really good campaign. Uh Aha. I think what happened to him was as the campaign went along, it was impossible for his candidate, for his campaign to adapt to the changing circumstances. They did not plan to be as close to being the nominee as they ended up being. And when the circumstances changed to a point where you had to go run in a state like Nevada or run in a state like South Carolina and really change your message and try to appeal to a, a new set of voters, they have never been able to prove able to move in any direction. Sanders has given essentially the same hour-long stump speech about wall street since last june
1: and this is and this is consistent this is this is this goes back 20 years and on the show we played a clip from a hearing about the crime bill in 94 if you ask him about questions about race or questions about crime he will almost always relate it back to an economic issue and a that's not inconsistent and b he's not necessarily wrong but in terms of the speech he gives or you know connecting to voters it's not doing him a favor
3: Well, there's a whole different side of progressivism that wasn't as powerful or wasn't as uh, in the forefront as when when he started out in politics. And he does – it's not that he can't talk to these people. is that he just kind of – it it appears – it was always very bewildering to us in the national press who were following him around that things would happen, things would change, and he would never change. I wrote a story about – in Nevada, right before the Nevada caucuses, that he lost sort of – taking a lot of air out of the balloon that he had uh, built up, up through New Hampshire. He did a speech where he was giving his hour long, stump speech. And by this time, people who came to his speeches had heard him speak so many times that the speech had become kind of like a call and response. People would finish his sentences. They would yell back to him about, you know, before he finished saying what he was going to say, they knew exactly where he was going. They knew the whole thing, even to the point that when it got near the end, they knew to sort of stand up and gather their belongings You know, that's a great story for a couple of days, maybe, but you have to keep making news for your campaign and you have to keep the interest and keep showing that you're ready to talk about talk about everything else everyone else is talking about. So he left he left a lot of space on the sides for Clinton and other Democrats to
1: attack him, boost his numbers with African-American voters. And he didn't really try that hard. So you think the lack of appeal to African-American voters, and this is why Hillary won the, I mean, she won in primaries instead of caucuses and states with closed uh, registration, but it was the African-American vote. They gave her huge victories. You think that was more a deficiency of Sanders? Uh, what could he have said? or was just that just a great strength of Clinton. She tended to that constituency, especially the older ones. Remember what she, and her husband did. I mean, what could Bernie Sanders have said to cut into that base of support?
3: Right, well, to quote Abe Simpson, it's a little from column A, a little from column B. <laughs> Clinton ha- has a strong support and a strong basis of support in the African-American community. They know that one of her earliest speeches was appealing to that electorate. Sanders has a very good record uh, on those issues, and he has a pretty good understanding of it. He was heckled early on in the campaign by Black Lives Matter activists, and he really went and tried to find out what those activists were interested in, talked to them, met with them, uh, started talking more about their issues on the campaign trail. He attracted the support of a lot of younger African American advocates and activists that are talking a bit of a different language than some of the older activists are when it comes to these issues. But, They were never able to translate that into building out support. So I think that Clinton had a huge advantage, but all Sanders had to do was make some inroads there and – Whatever reason that they had and the campaign sort of it, it flops around on this, they, they, they never really knew what they did wrong when it came to South Carolina. They had a million different explanations for what, what went wrong down there. But regardless, they were never able to break into those numbers at all. And that's what sort of left them where they are is that, is that you have a Democratic candidate in the 2016 election cycle that has not made much impact with one of the most important voting bases in
1: the Democratic Party. Is Bernie Sanders the kind of guy who knows the inside outs of politics, especially in states other than Vermont? Like, would would he just say, divine weaver, you do your stuff? I get the sense that Hillary Clinton probably knows every ward healer in the country. But uh, what about Bernie Sanders? How plugged in politically is he? He's a very wily
3: politician. This is one of the early lessons I learned from covering him is that he really does know how to do Politics in terms of I mean how to talk to people how to sort of engage what he doesn't know how to do and what he isn't particularly interested in is the sort of direct outreach that a Clinton type person does. You're right, like they never actually went out there and called all the super delegate type people early on as, as 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 Clinton had done for months and months and months before getting into the election. When they went to South Carolina, they they didn't really know how to operate the politics down there. They, they they didn't really pay a lot of attention to it. And Sanders has said this a number of times that you know he's learning a whole bunch of new stuff by being out there on the trail. And this is part of what it's like to have a campaign that was not expecting to be where it is, suddenly where it is. But also He didn't change up his senior staff at all. You didn't see him add any diversity to his senior staff. You didn't see him add in any outside people. He's had the same core group of people that have been focused on his career for a long time and had been winning for him in Vermont for a long time. And you didn't see him try and really adapt things to the national level as much.
1: Okay. So Bernie's uh, very liberal. He ran much more successfully than we thought he could. Therefore, let's put this through the no one knows anything machine. Bernie Sanders pulled Hillary Clinton to the left. I think that's uh, now becoming some conventional wisdom. Do you think it's true? It's actually
3: interesting. A future episode of the show that we're working on is actually about moments that Hillary Clinton came out far more liberal on issues than many people expected that she would. They expected a very centrist Hillary Clinton to come out. And early on, she was talking about taking on the NRA in ways that Democratic candidates don't usually do when it comes to the issue of guns. Early on, she was talking about expanding uh, access to abortion rights and uh, taking on the pro-life lobby in a way that Democratic candidates for national uh, office often do not. Their immigration is an area where before Sanders was even really in there, she was talking about issues that were very far to the left from what activists expected. Now, obviously, there's still a lot of pressure on her and all those things are changing as the election goes on. I think that when it comes to issues, some of these fundraising issues, Hillary Clinton, a lot of her message was I am a very competent, capable politician that is able to run the practical Normal game of politics. I go out there. I raise tons and tons of money for everyone. I come back. I sit down. I do hard legislative battles with uh, the Republicans. We make deals. We pass things. We win elections. She's talking less and less about that now because the money thing she can't really talk about because Sanders has got her all over – you know, is all over her on that. And then some of these issues where Democrats and Republicans generally tend to make agreements, uh, like on trade for example, she's had to go more in the Sanders direction. She's now um, openly opposed to trade deals that President Obama wants. So I do think that there are areas where this robust, unexpectedly robust – Democratic primary has forced her to take positions that I don't think that they expected that they would from the beginning. But overall, I think there's a lot of uh, – you should put a lot more credit on what Obama did to the Democratic Party in terms of where Clinton is than you should where – what Sanders did to the Democratic
1: Party in terms Did Bernie bloody up Hillary and hurt her? chances by exposing flaws, or did he toughen up Hillary and make her seem like a stronger candidate or at least someone who avoided a uh coronation, which is a charged term. And I'll just put my cards on the table. I think right now, whatever we think right now, right now the Hillary people are saying Bernie needs to get out and he's no no longer doing us good and he's hurting us at this point. This is the this would be the height of the she bloodied uh he bloodied her up argument. This is when it's the nastiest. But if we look back Did Sangas and Gephardt bloody up Clinton? Did Hillary bloody up Obama? Did Bradley bloody up Gore? You know, it seems terrible in the moment, but in the long run, I don't think too many candidates were really hurt. Democratic candidates were hurt by what they went through in primaries, but what do you think?
3: I have a hard time buying that Bernie is bloodying up Hillary who he might be bloodying up as Bernie because, because the problem is he sort of gained a lot of uh, respect from people for the campaign that he ran and the message that he delivered. There are a lot of people who are like, like, okay, this is pretty interesting. This guy's actually pretty surprising because he wasn't really thought of very highly prior to this. And now it's like, Oh, this guy's pretty good. And he could lose some of that cachet and that cred that he's earned inside the establishment uh, if he keeps doing this. And that seems to be somewhat important to him. I mean, this is a guy who goes on every Sunday show every weekend. So he likes to be inside the system. And that may be where he ends up turning, uh, where where his rhetoric may end up biting him.
1: Evan McMorris-Santoro is the White House correspondent for BuzzFeed, and his new compelling podcast is No One Knows Anything, though he has belied that title today, by laying some knowledge on us. Thank you so much, Evan. Thanks, Mike. And now the spiel, we're off like an address on Nerd Prom Night. At one point on Saturday, Larry Wilmore, telling jokes to a sometimes unwelcoming crowd of media elites at the White House Correspondents' Dinner, noted, you're a tough crowd. Well, that's only because the headliner, Wilmore, got upended by the Middle Act. In fact, uh, I think we've
0: got Republican Senators uh, Tim Scott and uh, Cory Gardner, uh, they're in the house, which reminds me, security, bar the doors. <laughs> Judge Merrick Garland. Come on up! We're going to do this right here, right now.
2: It's like the Red Wedding.
1: (laughs) Of course, when the Midler is the president of the United States, with eight years' experience in this venue, with great writers, with impeccable timing, and the ability to seemingly channel Larry Wilmore's old collaborator, Bernie Mac...
0: I ain't scared of you motherfuckers.
1: You got to ask, why should he be? The president can get the White House press corps to laugh at will and to beg and to roll over and to show up, to fet him after he snubs their FOIA requests and prosecutes a few of their colleagues. This, at least, was the reason why Bob Garfield of On the Media told Brian Stelter of Reliable Sources that the White House Correspondents' Dinner is a shame. These are supposed to be the watchdogs, watchdogging those in power. And they're, they're sitting there passing one another dinner rolls with zero possibility of any journalism breaking out. To which Stelter stammered, uh, I was there last night. Uh, I went to the parties. I tried to take in the whole thing. I mentioned
3: earlier, trying to be removed, trying to take it in and, and be, uh, be skeptical about it.
1: Reports of Brian Stelter sadly skulking around the correspondence dinner, refusing all offers of libation or revelry abounded. Hey, Brian, how you doing? No, Shepard. How dare you, Contessa? I cannot match your tone of gaiety, Savannah think of me as an anthropologist. And yeah, sure, on Instagram, there's a picture of me and the missus twirling around as confetti rains down inside something that MSNBC set up called the Glam Cam 360. You can find that at hashtag the place for party. But really, it was the place for skepticism. That would be more apropos. But you know what? Enough with Stelter. If he wants to play the role of CNN's Margaret Media, let him. This is about the propriety of the press cozying up to the presidency. And Bob used the right phrase. It's the apotheosis of the coziness. So why not just admit it? Go and say, yeah, we're cozy, or don't go. Like the New York Times doesn't go, even though they're the ultimate establishment organ. But don't go and say, we're going, but we're not cozy. And let's for a second think about what does it mean to say they're cozy? I don't think it means that the press gives the president, whoever the president is, a pass on policy. I don't think they replace their gimlet eye with the gold star automatically. I think it just means that establishment Washington and establishment media are clearly in a symbiotic relationship. It includes cross-pollination, it includes intermarriage, and it includes having, for the most part, having attended the same, I don't know, 20 colleges. Media should not boycott a gala celebration for itself. What it should do is stronger work on the other 364 days. Yeah, and on that day also. I have got nothing against a self-congratulatory quasi-awards show and quasi-stand-up comedy performance where some of the comedy is performed by the president. What I would be wary of is taking this gig if I were any stand-up in the world who hadn't secretly killed Osama bin Laden on the very night I was playing this venue five years ago. Wilmore knew this. President's funny. Stay in your lane, man.
0: <laughs> it's not, you don't see me going around presidenting all the time, right? I'm going to go around passing health care and signing executive orders, pardoning turkeys.
1: <laughs> not closing Guantanamo. <laughs> I would be wary if I were a stand-up comedian of taking this gig since the other guy who told jokes once in this very venue secretly killed Osama bin Laden on this very night. Wilmore knew this. I got to be
0: careful picking on you, though, Mr. President. You know, a couple of years ago during this dinner, uh, you were, like, killing Osama bin Laden. Remember that? Who are you killing tonight?
1: (laughs) Can't be print journalism. That industry's been dead for a while now, right? Larry Wilmore did good off a couple good lines. This one gets high marks for reference specificity. No, but it is good to be on C-SPAN. Glad I'm not
0: on your rival network. No input (laughs) HDMI one. And I especially like this joke. But to say a little bit about me, um, so... I am a black man uh, who replaced a white man who pretended to be a TV newscaster. So, yeah, in that way, Lester Holt and I have a lot in common.
1: So you have to work a little to unwind that. And when you do, you discover something very tart at the end. But since the teller made you, the audience member, do the work, he implicates you in the meanness. It's not a punchline so much as a joke IED. Wilmore also took aim at the network that employs reluctant attendee Brian Stelter.
0: CNN is here tonight, you mentioned CNN, yep, Um, I've been watching CNN a long time, yep, used to watch it back uh, when it was a news network,
1: (laughs) I did. To which CNN responded with an article headlined, Larry Wilmore misses chance to boost his sagging ratings. is <laughs> from the CNN website. Larry Wilmore could have used a big night to boost the weak ratings of the nightly show. Instead, his appearance at the White House Correspondents' Dinner was widely criticized as a bust, and critics panned his performance. You know, the whole article, it was kind of a Fox move, CNN. And I've seen the ratings for Anderson Cooper's rerun that's up against Larry in the 11 o'clock hour. That's not doing so great in the demo, and it's not exactly an argument that you are, in fact, a 24-hour news network. In the end, it was what Larry Wilmore said in the end that got so much attention. I am going to play that in unbleeped form. Warning, it's a racial... Well, let's just say I wouldn't say it.
0: Yo, Barry, you did it, my nigga. You did
1: it. And I do play that clip because it drives me crazy when news media weigh in if a word or phrase was or wasn't out of bounds, and they bleep the very word, thus kind of letting you know what they think. I was kind of shocked to have heard it. I got the sense that Larry Wilmore said to himself, well, I'm going to only have this chance once, and I do not care who I piss off. I do think it put Obama in kind of a bad position, though a spokesman today said the president, quote, appreciated the spirit of Mr. Wilmore's expression. And I'm sure the media appreciated the opportunity to have a headline that played well in the demo. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi. Yeah, we got it. Andrea Salenzi is just okay. Moving on. Andrea Salenzi is just producer. Righto. Steve Lichtai is executive. Uh-huh. Steve Lichtai is executive producer. Mm-hmm. Steve Liktai is executive producer of Slate Podcast. Moving on to Andy Bowers is chief content. Okay. Andy Bowers is chief content officer. All right. Andy Bowers is chief content for, read you loud and clear, chief content officer of the Panoply Network. The Gist, you know. I'm not saying that they should hire me for the job, but I wrote some jokes for the dinner. Right. John King is here. John King, you see John King on CNN touching that map on CNN all the time. You know John King has put his fingers into more New Jerseys than a shoplifter at the Sports Authority. Ladies and gentlemen, Steve Kornacki is here. Steve Kornacki, you see what you see what this guy wears on MSNBC. The last time I saw so many sweaters at MSNBC. The network had just announced they were going to fire all the newscasters who tell anecdotes that exaggerate their personal accomplishments. Sweaters. Okay, Wilmore, you got the gig. And thanks for listening. It's, uh, it's a disgrace. It's a sham. It's a sham of a so, mockery of a travesty of two <laughs> mockeries of a sham. Tell me how you really
2: feel. Yeah.